You are listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. Now in its 20th year, the Lumen Christi Institute enriches academic communities at the University of Chicago and across the nation with the wisdom of the Catholic intellectual and spiritual tradition. Today's conversation is with Cardinal Anders Arborelius, Bishop of Stockholm, Sweden, Carmelite priest, and longtime friend of the Institute. We sat down with the Cardinal in the Gavin House Library to discuss his life, work, and ministry as shepherd of all of Sweden's Catholics. Good morning, folks, and welcome to our Lumen Christi Institute podcast. My name is Michael Bradley. I work with the Institute doing communications and events. I'm here with Mark Franz and our programs coordinator, and we are very honored and humbled to be joined today by His Eminence Cardinal Anders Aborelius, about whom we will hear much more anon. So let me just say welcome, Cardinal. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's a joy to be with you. Let's start by having you say a bit about your history. Tell us about your upbringing, your conversion story, and how it is that you arrived at the point of being Sweden's first cardinal? Well, actually, I was born in Switzerland, but by Swedish parents. Uh, I was born in a Catholic hospital, so maybe the good sisters put some holy water on me. (laughs) But I was baptized in the Lutheran church, but I was never active in that church. I learned to pray from my mother, so I always had a faith. But as a child, I hardly ever went to church. But um, I had this contact with the sisters of St. Bridget uh, in Switzerland and also in Sweden. So those were the first Catholics I met. And I think their influence, their impact, uh, was the first inspiration for me to grow closer to the Catholic Church and the faith. Uh, I went to school. I uh, studied languages in Sweden. And after finishing high school, I decided to start a course in Catholic faith because somehow, without knowing so much about Catholic faith, I had come to the conviction that there I have to look for God, there I will have, I would find truth. So it was nothing dramatic, it was a gradual growth. And then for one year and a half, I followed Catholic instruction. And at the same time, I studied uh, modern languages at the University of Lund, uh, where the Pope came two years ago. I was brought up in that city. And um, I come from a family that is a bit strange, because my father was married three times and my mother twice. So somehow I have uh, half-brothers and sisters, but um, somehow I have lived this uh, experience of so many people in our society, uh, families that are divided. And maybe through that experience I was also brought uh, to look for God and for guidance in my life. In um, 1969, I was then 20 years old, I was received into the church in a private ceremony in Malmö, the third city of Sweden. And already then, I felt the longing to be a priest. At that time, we had an American bishop in Sweden, John Taylor of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. 
And after the first year of being a Catholic, I already asked him uh, to enter into the seminary. But he was a very wise man. He said, it's too early. You have to wait. You have to know more about your faith and be more active in a parish. And during that year, I discovered the Carmelite Order. Uh, my first contact was uh, with Teresa of Lisieux. I read her autobiography, and that made a great impact on me. Even if I hadn't visited any Carmelites, I had never met a Carmelite, uh, somehow I felt that that's my way, that's my vocation. So then after another half year, I went to a Carmelite monastery in Sweden. It was a foundation from Belgium, together with a friend who was also a convert. And I heard afterwards that the friars thought maybe the other one could be a Carmelite. They didn't think about me. But um, the same year, I asked them to be received as a postulant. And they said, yes, you can try. So that's how it started, my life in Carmel. 1971. And you went on to spend 20 years or so living in a Carmelite contemplative monastery, correct, in the south of Sweden? Yes, that's true. Um, I spent 27 years uh, as a Carmelite friar, mostly then in Sweden, but during those years I also studied philosophy and theology in Belgium, in Bruges, in Flemish, and then two years in Rome, at Teresianum, the Carmelite Institute for Spirituality. So I studied Italian. So up to um, 1998, I lived in a Carmelite monastery. And then what was it that happened in 1998 well, that it, changed that picture? It's a very funny story, really. I happened to be in the Philippines because during my life as a Carmelite friar, I was invited to give retreats. Uh, in Latin America, but at that time in the Philippines. I was in the Carmel of Iloilo, and then I had a phone call from my superior, and he told me, you have to get back to Sweden to see the nuncios. And then, of course, I was uh, clever enough to know what it was all about because the former bishop, Hubertus Brandenburg, a German, uh, was going to retire. And of course it was a kind of shock for me because I had never had any real leading function in the order. I had no, never been prior or anything like that. So I had a sleepless night. Uh, but uh, the strange thing is that the same day I had a talk about uh, the Annunciation, Mary, who um, was told to become the mother of God. And then I thought, if she said yes, I couldn't say no. If the Holy Father wants me to be a bishop, even if I don't know how to do, how to act, and what it's all about, because I had, I had no experience of being pastor of a parish or anything. So it was really in pure faith that I had to say yes when I met the nuncio. During your talk yesterday in downtown Chicago, you mentioned your encounter with John Paul II in 1998 and the impression that he made on you. Can you say for our viewers what it was like to meet him? 
and to experience? Well, it was a very special thing to encounter John Paul. Already when I was nominated bishop, I could meet him and he gave me a cross that I like to put on, a pectoral cross. I don't remember what he said so much, but the way he looked upon you, uh, I always thought that that's the way that Jesus looked upon people, so they could really see that they were loved, that they were important in the eyes of God. It was also a bit of a... Uh, you felt uneasy because if someone can look into your heart, they will see everything. But it was a very loving gaze. So I remember those times I had the privilege to meet John Paul. That was very important, the way he looked upon you, right into your heart. I remember one of the last time I met him, he was old and it was difficult to hear what he said. And I went up to greet him and he said something that I didn't understand. And I didn't know, should I? I didn't hear what you say, Holy Father, but I pretended to hear what he said. And people wonder, what did the Holy Father say to you? I said, I didn't hear him, but I saw his eyes. So for me, that's what I remember from uh, John Paul, the way he looked upon. And I think that's the way we have to try to look upon each other, try to uh, look as Jesus would have looked upon us with this immense love and at the same time uh, see uh, that he's reflected in the person we encounter. That's very beautiful. Now, nearly 20 years after John Paul II appointed you the first ethnic Swede to occupy Sweden's sole see since the Reformation, you received another notice that you would be elevated. This past June, Pope Francis made you Sweden's first cardinal. And are you the first cardinal from the three Nordic countries since the Reformation? Do I have that right? I thought I well, read this somewhere. Well, there were never any cardinals in Northern Europe even before the Reformation. Uh, there were, um, we had a king in Sweden called Sigismund. He was king of Sweden and Poland. And he was driven away from Sweden because he was a Catholic. So he went to Poland. And some of uh, of his descendants, one or two were made cardinals in Poland. So they had a Swedish origin, but they were really Polish. But in in our Nordic countries, there has never been any cardinal before. You are the shepherd of the entire flock of Sweden, in which there is one diocese, the Diocese of Stockholm. What is your pastoral ministry like in a country in which nearly two-thirds of those who are baptized are baptized as Lutherans, and yet in which many people are not at all church-going or who self-identify as religious. You mentioned yesterday that only one or two percent of Sweden's population is Catholic. That's very different from the life of the church here in America. What is your ministry like? What are the, what are the most pressing and important issues that you have to deal with as a pastor on a daily basis? Well, it's true. It's a very special way of being church in Sweden because most of the Catholics come from other countries. I would say more than 80% are immigrants or second-generation immigrants, and Swedes are very few. And um, up to now, 
uh, you couldn't be a real Swede and a Catholic at the same time because modern Sweden was born against the Catholic Church. But then gradually, thanks to God's providence, the situation has improved. So since the year of 2000, we have equal rights and um, the Catholic Church uh, has been able to develop uh, quite rapidly. So uh, there are places where more Catholics go to church than Protestants because um, unfortunately most Swedes uh, belong to the Lutheran church, don't go to church very much as I did when I was a child. There are small groups of very fervent Lutherans but most of them have not much contact with the church. And of course the Catholics who come to Sweden, they're also influenced by this secular atmosphere. So that's why we have to promote a very deep spirituality in order to help them to remain close to God, close to the church. And that's one of our main uh, efforts, to help people to uh, grow in the personal relationship with our Lord in order to survive amongst those who do not believe or or are uh, lukewarm or indifferent. And we see that those Catholics who come from other countries, they have a choice either to become more profoundly uh, united to the Lord or they will drift away. So that's one of our challenges, to find the Catholics coming to Sweden. And Sweden has become a country of immigrants. Uh, we have people from all over the world and that's also a challenge to bring them together, to make them feel one in Christ, because some of them feel more attached to the uh, church of their homeland. They feel more attached to Poland or to Argentina or to whatever. But we have to build up a community where they can bring their traditions, where they are well accepted, and together with other people, build up the local church. And especially important for the young people, to feel that they are the future of the church here in Sweden. They have to really take over. So there are many challenges, but also many joys, because we see that there are people who are very convinced and very active, and of course, other who lapse. So that's our daily task, really, to promote this uh, profound insight into the mystery of Christ, help people to live in prayer, to follow Jesus uh, in their everyday life and bring them all together. And that's not always so easy, so different cultures. So we have those interior little fights and conflicts on an everyday basis. But still, I'm very proud to say that there are many good and uh, convinced Catholics in Sweden. And that has also made an impact on other Christians and um, we have also tried to promote better ecumenical relationships. And that means, strangely enough, that some of them want to become Catholic. Mm -hmm. If we have good relationships, they see Catholics are not as dangerous or as terrible as they thought. And uh, that's what we see now that also Protestant ministers turn to become Catholic and people from all kinds of society even if there are not so many, but at least 100 person a, years, a year want to become Catholic.
This summer, Pope Francis also appointed you a member of the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. It seems to me that this is a recognition from the Vatican of the good work you're doing in the ecumenical trenches of, of Sweden's particular situation. But the remarks you just made touch a little bit on the talk that you delivered last night downtown on the importance of silence and contemplative prayer in the midst of such a secular society as you've just described. And this afternoon here on campus, you're giving a talk on the important witness that the tradition of contemplative feminine prayer plays in the church herself. For our listeners who won't be able to attend these events, can you summarize the important messages of both in terms of how your Carmelite spirituality and the tradition in which you stand and its great saints and mystics can bear great fruit for the world, which is secular, but also for a church which can seem distracted and scattered and divided among itself? Well, it's true. And I think we live in a secular age, a secular society, and somehow we have look upon that as God's providence, that God can be found even in this secular world. But then you have a personal responsibility to really long for God, strive for God, and do what you can in order to grow in this personal, contemplative uh, union to the Lord. And that's what we try to do in Sweden. We try to help people to realize that we cannot dream about a society where everyone is Catholic or everyone is Christian, because it's not like that anymore. But if we live our faith in a very faithful way, we can help other people, even in our secular society, to discover that Jesus is alive, that it's possible to be a disciple of Christ and live together with him. But then you really have to grow into a more prayerful way of living your life. You have to discover that God is not far away. He lives in us through baptism. We are the temple of God. We can always unite ourselves to him. We can find the traces of God in creation, in nature, in other people. We can live in God's presence as Lawrence of the Resurrection, the Carmelite lay brother, taught us. So if we really make this effort, it's also something wonderful to live in a secular society as a witness of Christ. And this afternoon I will speak about the special message of contemplative women in a society where uh, there is a lack of understanding of this deep, personal, mystical life that we can call the bridal spousal mystery. Christ is the bridegroom of the church and each one of us as a person can live this spousal relationship with Christ in a very intimate way. But it's easier to grasp when we see it incarnated into a group of female religious. It's not so easy for a tough and cool young man to look upon himself as the bride of Christ. But somehow in the deepest of our heart, we can live this mystery of being united to Christ in this way. So that's why I think uh, a female community of contemplative nuns can give a witness in a society where weapons abound, where there's a lot of violence, where so many people feel homeless, lonely, to see that there is a community of women 
praying for the salvation of the world. And I was very touched to hear yesterday that the late Cardinal George uh, wanted to have two contemplative female community in the area of Chicago. There is the community of the Carmelite nuns in Des Plaines since a long time ago, but he went to fetch um, poor Claire's from, um, I think it was from, um, well, Oklahoma or somewhere in the south, because he said, in the south of the city, I also need uh, this firehouse of contemplative women. And in Sweden, we are fortunate to have six communities of uh, female contemplative nuns. And I think uh, that's providential in a very secular society that we have this presence to show that this can also help so many other people to grow in this uh, friendship with God. For instance, I often hear people uh, telling me, I have asked the sisters for prayers. I'm not religious and I don't even know if I believe in God, but somehow I want them to pray for me. It's a bit strange, it's typical Swedish and it's not logical, but somehow people feel there is something more in such a community. It's a kind of witness of that God is alive, that God is real. Because for so many people in a secular society, there is a longing, there is a hope, and they have to see that there are people who are willing to surrender totally to God, that it's worthwhile. It's not just an idea, it's real. And I think that's one of our main challenges because uh, to help people to see that God is real, it's not an idea. Because there are some Christians who have forgotten that in our country. God is more a kind of an idea. But for us as Catholics, it's so important to say, no, God is real, more real than we are. We have received our existence, our reality from him. We are the images of God. So I think this witness of a female, also of a male community, but I would say a female uh, contemporary community is more efficient to show this spousal, bridal mystery of our faith, that Christ is the bridegroom of the faith of the church, and we are all called to be closely united to him. I think that what you're describing is especially important for the church today. This summer, the Pope created a commission to study the question of the female diaconate from historical and theological perspectives. And so there has been an increased degree of conversation in the worldwide church about the general role of women in the life of the church. And so it strikes me that what you'll be speaking about this afternoon comes at a good time as an important reminder about the uniquely beautiful ways in which women contribute to the life of the church and are very close to the heart of the church. Do you have any perspective that you would like to share on not the question of the female diaconate itself, but more generally on the question of women in the life of the church? You come from a very different cultural milieu than than we here in the American church have, but there have, there have been suggestions about a college of feminine advisors such as St. John Paul II often made recourse to in the form of Chiara Lubick or Mother Teresa herself. What do you think we might see in the next couple of years in the church by way of resolution of these sorts of questions? Well, 
I haven't got the gift of prophecy, but I am sure that the church has come to a point when uh, the role of women has become very urgent, very important. And I think one of the charism could be this contemplative uh, presence in the church to show that uh, the church as such is a kind of female mystery. We see the church incarnated in a very special way in Our Lady. In her we see the real essence, the deepest mystery of the church. And somehow that has to be reflected in concrete ways in the church. And one of those reflections, of course, is the contemplative uh, aspect. I think there is also this social aspect. Uh, Pope Francis is very eager to remind us that the church is for the poor and to find a way how women can incarnate that aspect. aspect. We have seen that many of those uh, congregations that were founded in the 19th century for charitable and for education are disappearing. So we need something new, but in the same way, I mean, because the church is there for adoration, for prayer, for contemplation, but also for serving the poor, for taking care of the lonely, for the downtrodden. And I don't know how but I always say I'm dreaming and hoping there will be some saints coming on showing us what to do in the way of Mother Teresa of Calcutta and so forth. And we know there are such new experiences, such new ways of seeing how we in our society of today can incarnate this aspect of our faith. Uh, so I'm hopeful uh, and I'm longing to see what the Lord will offer us. Because I think it's nothing that we bishop can organize. It has to be a gift from God, charism, as we have seen uh, through church history. And um, I would say the female aspect uh, is a charismatic aspect. And in the church we have hierarchy and charism. And they have to go together, Peter and Mary, and how can a woman today show the face of Mary in a society where there is so much violence, where there is so much poverty, so much injustice, so many wars? So that's, I'm a dreamer. I know it has a special accent in America. And I dream of a church where we find that there are women who can incarnate this aspect uh, so we need both the contemplative and the, the other aspect. Uh, for the moment, I think um, in many parts of the world, uh, vocations go to these contemplative uh, monasteries. Uh, but we also have to find something for those who want to serve uh, the suffering Christ in their neighbors. So that's what I pray for, and that's what I dream about but I don't know how it would be. His Eminence, Anders Cardinal Arborelius, a longtime friend of the Lumen Christi Institute, spoke yesterday on Monday evening on the subject of silence, prayer, and contemplation in a secular society, and today he'll be giving the talk, The Witness of Contemplative Women in the Heart of the Church. We encourage our listeners to check out the website for the video of both events, which will be posted shortly. 
Your Eminence, thank you for your witness and for your pastoral work and for joining us here this morning. Thank you so much. You have very interesting questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Lumen Christi Institute podcast. To access more resources, please visit our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The music for this episode, Sequence for St. Hilarion, is recorded by the Lumen Christi Institute Artists-in-Residence, Scola Antiqua of Chicago, on their CD, West Meets East, Sacred Music from the Torino Codex.